Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR 161AM71, Work, Job Experiences, From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 177, September 13, 1988. This evening, Otto Scott and I are going to discuss work, specifically job experiences that we have had, but work generally. Otto will have an advantage here because he has held a variety of jobs, whereas most of my life I have been in the ministry, and there's much there that I cannot discuss. However, by way of introduction, I'd like to call attention to something that I feel indicates the difference between some years ago, 65 or so years ago, when I started school, and schools today. At that time, before we wrote compositions, one of the things we were expected to do by way of expression was to get up and say in a few sentences what we wanted to do when we grew up, what kind of work we were interested in. Much later, well, a couple of years later, we wrote essays on the subject. I wonder if any students do that now. But schooling was very much work-oriented at the time. Looking back, the thing that uh, I remember vividly was that so many of the boys in the class were interested in doing what their fathers were doing. Now, perhaps later on they shifted into something else. But at the beginning, the influence of the family was such that the boys in the class wanted to imitate their fathers. I'm citing this because it tells us a couple of things, how family-oriented children were then, that they wanted to uh, pattern themselves after their parents, and how work-oriented they were so that no boy of uh, six had any trouble getting up and saying what he wanted to do when he grew up. I would suspect that very few could answer that question now. Otto, any reactions? Well, yes, that's a fresh observation and one that hadn't occurred to me. I think you're right about that. I remember uh, writing a composition, as we called it in those days, who gave us a series of titles, and you could choose whichever title you liked to write about. And I remember writing one on Thomas Edison, and the title of the composition was The Wizard of Menlo Park. And it wasn't even necessary for the teacher to tell us who the wizard was. We all knew that it was Mr. Edison, and we knew the names of Harvey Firestone, and many other leading industrialists, inventors, generals, heroes of the United States. I remember when Lindbergh went across the Atlantic that the following week or the following day after he landed in Paris, there was a general discussion between the teacher and the class on the meaning of this particular achievement and so forth. His modesty, he said, we made it and so forth. Now, I don't believe we have the same kind of heroes. Uh, I've gone into the uh, libraries, and I see on the shelves of the libraries rock stars, uh, actors, actresses, athletes, uh, a great deal of black people who have been successful, women, who have been successful. We've always had successful women. We had Amelia Earhart uh, at the, practically the same time as Lindbergh. 
we had uh, very outstanding actors and actresses. We had authors. We had people who wrote books and so forth. But it wasn't emphasized as such. And yet there was a, a sort of a feeling of a healthy society which the children had at that time, which I don't think they have today. But the whole question of work, the whole question, as you say, my experience has been unique. I recall when we lived in the Copacabana Hotel in Rio, there were some men working on the hill not too far away, and they had little hammers that looked like gavels from a distance and chisels. And they were chiseling brick out of stone. And they looked very much like our brick, about the same size. Tap, tap, tap. And you'd hear this tapping going on all day long. And my father took me out on the balcony and said, Now, do uh, you think they work hard? I said, Yes, of course. Work very hard. He said, How much money do you think they made? I said, I had no idea. And he told me. He made it his business to find out. It was some ridiculously low sum. So then he said, Hard work alone isn't sufficient, is it? He said, you have to apply yourself with some intelligence. And he was not the sort of man who was apt to lecture. He would drop a thing like that on you once in a while and then wouldn't pay any attention to you for months. He never had conversations with me until I grew up. He, he, he was not what you'd call a a playmate. He wasn't one of those. He wasn't a soft, warm type. <laughs> but I remember his tips. And I remember after I left home, when I was, what, 16 or so, I was in Baltimore, and I was down at the farmer's market in Baltimore, uh, walking around. And one of the men asked me if I wanted some work, and I said, sure. So it was loading or unloading. It was unloading and stacking 100-pound sacks of potatoes and onions as the trucks came in. And I worked all day. And at the end of the day, we were finished. I went over to get my money. And he pulled out one of these merchants' purses, big long purse, filled with coin. And he dug around in there and he got some coins and he finally gave me something like 35 or 40 cents. Mm -hmm. And I kicked him and punched him. <laughs> and got into quite a bit of trouble. I finally got out of the trouble on that one. But the thing that I learned after that was don't go to work until you find out how much money you're going to get. <laughs> You know, uh, you brought back memories to me when you mentioned writing about the wizard of Menlo Park. And uh, we had that kind of assignment to write about one of the uh, important men in current science or business. That's right. Harvey Firestone, yes. Henry Ford, right. uh, Edison, and others. Yes. So that we knew what people were accomplishing in our own time. Well, business and, was a part of our culture. Yes, and I recall uh, going to see a parade in which Edison, Firestone, and Ford were all present. I think school was let out that day so we could go. I know that uh, the next school day, we uh, were asked to uh, give our reactions to having mm -hmm. seen uh, these men. And we were expected to have an awareness of the world going on around us and an appreciation of what these men were accomplishing. Well, it was also, we were expected to already know, they didn't take us on tours, we, we weren't taken to any factories when I was a boy in, in grammar no. school. We weren't given any of those kind of uh, instructional things, but we were expected to already know. And I knew that Edison had only gone to the fourth grade, 
and that he had trouble hearing because one of, a conductor hit him in the head, yes. hit him in the ear, and broke one of his eardrums uh, when he was selling candy and cigars on the train. Mm-hmm. He'd worked his way up. Yes. Well, there were still Horatio Alger paperbacks, you know, in the Mama Papa confectionery stores of New York City when I was a boy, and I used to buy them for 10 cents each. They were used books. I, I've read Horatio Alger and Oliver Optic and all, <laughs> all of those <laughs> to- ate them up by the tongue. And they were all of poor boys uh, who had come to the attention of some well-meaning businessman by stopping a runaway horse or doing some deed of bravery or gallantry. Good was rewarded and doors opened. And... Uh, the real message was a highly moral message that the world is rational, that effort pays. And there was another element, and I think I was fortunate in the fact that although the Scots, my branch of the Scott family was international, that my mother's family were working class. And the working class they didn't know they were poor. Mm -hmm. They owned their home. It was a modest home. Uh, They had Sunday going to church clothes. Uh, They had food on the table. They really didn't lack for anything, and they had no envy. There was never a discussion of what other people had. Yes, I think that's an extremely important point, Otto, because I believe that note of envy was introduced by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in his campaign and then as president in his fireside talks and speeches. The economic had, royalists. Economic royalists were attacked. Male factors of great wealth. Yes. And because Roosevelt was regarded in almost messianic terms, Everything he said was taken seriously, and it created immediately a hatred, a division that was very, very deep. It's interesting because Mr. Roosevelt was not a Marxist. He was a snob. He was very class-conscious personally. And a snob is a low-level attitude. It's a back-of-the-stairs attitude. I mean, it comes, of course, from the English scene of nobility in the private schools. I mean, without nobility, not a member of the peerage. And people who are not a member of the peerage have more class consciousness than the people who are, because, of course, there's something there that they don't have. Roosevelt was very class conscious, so was Mrs. Roosevelt, who played Lady Bountiful from one end of this country to the other. I'll never forget that cartoon in The New Yorker, which showed these two coal miners, and one of them was <laughs> looking remember. into the darkness and said, My God, it's Mrs. Roosevelt! <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, that was a classic cartoon. Well, I saw the implications of what Roosevelt was doing very clearly when I graduated from high school. Because that summer, the summer of 1934, before I entered college, I worked in San Francisco at the Crystal Palace Market. It was in its day the largest indoor market in the world. In its size, it would easily encompass more ground than... uh, Super uh, malls do now. It was an enormous market. I remember. Foods. It was very impressive. I remember it. Yes. Well, I worked there at one of the stands, one of the concessioners, selling uh, rice, uh, coconuts, all kinds of grains, uh, dried foods, dried fruits, pine nuts in the bulk. Mm. In fact, we would get the uh, shredded coconut in huge barrels. Mm. <laughs> and then uh, take it... All imported? 
I guess so. Yes. Come from someplace else. And you'd fill up the bins with it. Of course, in those days, a, a seaport was different than the regular city. Yes, that's true. Well, I worked 59 hours a week for $13. And uh, I was one of the better paid employees around in those days. There were uh, four of us working there. The other young man and girl, I don't recall at all, except that they were there. Uh, the third was a girl whose first name was B.B. And uh, I enjoyed her uh, quite a bit because she was intelligent, she was lively, and uh, she was also interested in writing. In fact, uh, she had sold a few short, short stories to Liberty and uh, publications like that under another name. Interestingly, uh, she was very uh, interested and respectful of my Christian uh, position and background. Uh, she herself was Jewish without any faith, and she'd ask me some intelligent questions. Well, the thing that marked that experience there at the Crystal Palace Market was that that was the summer of the general strike, 1934. And what you had was a bewildered population that still had the old training and education now being told that they should hate and envy and resent everyone else. And any number of uh, radical groups with all kinds of names with socialists in them, and the communists as well, were going through the market every day and through every uh, place of employment in downtown San Francisco, passing out mimeographed sheets that were calling for revolution. At that time, the Longshoreman strike was on, and every day there were dead bodies floating in the bay. I don't know whether there's any record of how many disappeared at that time. No. <laughs> People no were record. afraid to talk about it or to admit it. The boss there at our particular concession told us to be uh, agreeable to these agitators who came through because he said, uh, it won't do you any good to argue with them and I don't want you floating in the bay. These are dangerous people. They were calling for a general strike and they truly believed that with that general strike, the whole population of the United States would arise against the uh, exploiters. Uh, exploiters. And uh, the revolution would begin in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. It was quite an experience to go through. For years, as I moved from place to place, I kept those old mimeographed sheets, but they were on such poor paper and disintegrating, I finally threw them away. Well, it might interest you to know that years later I became a, a pretty good friend of Harry Bridges. Oh. <laughs> and uh, knew him and, uh, and, and Watson and several other members of the ILG, the uh, Longshore Union, quite well. The uh, Bridges was an interesting man is, I guess. He's still alive, I believe. He yeah. must be quite elderly. Is right. he still alive? I don't think so, but I could be wrong. I'm, I'm not sure about it, but he, in uh, ordinary conversation, a very mild, easygoing, mm -hmm. uh, well, not, not particularly easygoing, but very mild and quiet, uh, he would grow uh, in reaction, uh, in argument. Mm -hmm. And the more people he had arguing against him, the larger he would appear. Mm -hmm. Very unusual reaction. He uh, was almost entirely fearless. He was the uh, 
chosen standard bearer for that general strike. Mm -hmm. Well, we have to go back. If we're going to talk about labor and management, and I think you can't evade that if you're going to talk about work, mm -hmm. is that the history of labor in the United States from the post-Civil War period onward is a, a history of violence. Yes. Violence came in with the early refugees from the war, the Revolution of 1848 yes. in Germany. And uh, they introduced all these socialist ideas. Mr. Roosevelt, I think, was one of the victims of those ideas because he mm. accepted many of them. He accepted the idea that the working man was per se innocent, an innocent savage, so to speak, and the decadent aristocracies were uh, treating them badly. But from the earliest unions on, from the Haymarket days on, the unions have had goons and strong-arm yes. squads. And when I was in the Siemens Union, as you know, and I took part in the big strike when Harry Truman was president at the right after World War II, in fact, closing period of World War II. And we had two strike committees. We had an official strike committee, which could be arrested and put in jail if uh, the union got uh, violated a, a legal injunction or something. And then there was a secret strike committee, which actually ran the strike, which we called the Seeing Eye Committee. And I was on that committee. Mm -hmm. The uh, early on... Both the employers and the unions would use strong-arm men. And I remember in the very late 30s, when the head of the, uh, the printing trades unions was a senator, Senator Berry, from, I believe, Tennessee, I'm not sure. And they had very tough men. And there have been lots of murders in the United States over labor uh, the general strike was the only general strike we ever had in a city. Mm -hmm. So it was a spectacular thing. But what you're saying about the bodies floating in the bay could be repeated from one end of this country to yes. the other. Yes. I when, uh, when Mo Annenberg set up the racing wire, he was, uh, you know, one of the biggest gangsters we've ever had. Yeah. And his son later became ambassador to England and is now entertaining uh, President Reagan and whatnot, all that blood-stained money that the Andenbergs have. He just sold TV Guide for I don't know how many millions of dollars. There were over 400 men killed by Annenberg's agents in order to establish a monopoly on the racing wire. And yet... With all the agitation, with all the effort from the 1850s and 70s and 80s and the bombs in 1900, 1905 and 1910 and the IWW and the Harry Bridges and the Communist Party and all the rest of it, they were never able to get the average American to hate somebody else for succeeding. Yes, that's very true. The atmosphere changed dramatically after Roosevelt took over. It gained a respectability, the hatred of one's betters. It became acceptable intellectually because it was no longer a sin. Yes. It also changed the moral climate. Now, when I was 10 years old in 1926, I worked... Uh, a summer as an office boy in the General Motors building How in Detroit. Paid? Do you remember? I don't remember what I was paid. Uh, <laughs> I was paid reasonably well then, better than during the Depression. And uh, I regularly walked to the bank with a lot of money. Oh, sure. And Perfectly safe. Perfectly safe. Oh, yes. There was never any uh, feeling that there might be a threat or a problem. Oh, no. Uh, I would go there and come back. Uh, no problem. Women and children were safe. Yes. Women and children were protected. Mm -hmm. Well, the third year of the general strike was the year I left home, 1934. 
and I didn't get to San Francisco, although I wanted to, because it sounded interesting. But the police were turning people back. Uh, there were, by the way, posters on the trees around the railroad jungles of strike breakers, wanted, they'd say, scab, number so-and-so, and they'd give his name, and all this. I think I got about as far as Portland, I'm not sure, and then the uh, police said you'd be better off to go back the other way. So I went back and stopped in Montana and spent a summer at Whitefish, Montana. It was an interesting summer because I found out that a railroad tie, which is, as you know, creosote soaked, mm -hmm. will burn exactly overnight. And uh, if you set two of them on fire and sleep in the middle, <laughs> it was perfect. <laughs> and in the morning, I'd pull in my lines from the lake, and I'd always have a couple of fish, and I'd fry fish for breakfast. I had enough uh, to cook a fish. And I had a couple of part-time jobs, and I stayed there until the weather turned cold, and I went down to Bismarck, North Dakota, where I learned how to play poker and got a job with the Federal Emergency Relief Administration and began to find out something about office work and all that sort of thing. Uh, I spent a lot of time in those years in the libraries. And I lived in two worlds. I lived in an intellectual world of books and better minds, you might say, in distant places, and then a real world of rather as I look back on it, uh, elemental sort of prosaic living. I got to know and to meet a great many poor American families, and I found them to be unfailingly kind and generous. I conceived a great admiration for the people of this country at that point. And, uh, but I never did... Uh, go into the uh, all-American idea of continued education or continued schooling, let me say. Continued schooling with a hope of getting a job with a big company and all the security involved. Uh, I made a deliberate choice for insecurity from the beginning. I thought it was more exciting, it was more interesting, and since I knew I was going to be a writer, I would learn more. Well, one of the things that marked the transition from the 20s, which had their problems and yeah, indeed. Uh, were far from an ideal period, was the fact that while in the 20s the uh, superficial and ugly culture affected people at the top, by the 40s, it began to go to the bottom. That's a good point. That's a very good point. In the 30s, the average uh, man was still in the uh, tradition of uh, Christian faith and culture. That's true. But, but by the 40s, with a combination of uh, politics and education, everyone was beginning to be infected by the... Uh, world of envy, the world of class uh, hostility and resentment, hatred. Well, don't forget that, well, as you say, the 20s were an ugly course period. The 20s were very hard for working people. They were very good for people who were in speculative industries, as uh, somewhat similar to today. If they were in the stock market, if they were in real estate, if they were in luxury goods, if they were in leisure, entertainment, uh, bootlegging, but if they were farmers, if they were in a steel mill and, and in basic industry, things were very difficult. There was a lot of open prejudice. Uh, the attitude of the United States in the 20s is what drove my father out of the country. Uh, he could not stand the open references to everyone else's race or religion or ethnicity. He couldn't put up with it. And he said that the men that he had to deal with in business in Wall Street uh, drank too much, 
talked too much and had too many prejudices. He found it easier and better for him to go back to Caracas than he went back in the uh, he went back in the early 30s and thereafter only came to this country as a visitor. And I kept saying, well, uh, I said, you know, you've only known New York and Washington, two worst cities we've got at that time. But the 40s were the period of institutionalization. Don't forget, the 40s were when the government began to school everybody. Yes. And teach everybody. And much as in England, the socialists were the teachers. Yes. Yes, and war is always a revolution because it is an opportunity for centralization of power and the creation of a totally different uh, culture. Well, war is by its essence amoral. Yes. Well, the New Deal, of course, used the war to create a radically different country. And the difference between, say, the people in 1939 and 1949 is quite dramatic. As dramatic as the difference between world wars uh, before World War One and later. Yes. I have a cousin who is only five years younger, but he might as well be of another generation. Those who matured before World War Two are different than those who matured later. One of the things, Otto, that I feel also occurred was that there was a changed attitude towards work. Men prided themselves on being good workers, conscientious workers, in the 20s and in the 30s. Uh, but by the latter part of the 30s, uh, all the New Deal uh, bureaus and agencies began to create another outlook. You remember the WPA workers uh, and the joke about uh, their biggest uh, effort was leaning on their shovel. It was an overstatement, but there was a real element of truth because minimal work for the maximum pay began to be a demand. And I saw that when old 36, 37, somewhere along there. I worked for a while at the Market News Bureau in San Francisco in the old ferry building. And what the Market News did, it was a federal agency, was to collect every day the uh, records of the amount of uh, fruit, vegetables, food stuff of any kind that came into San Francisco by ship or rail or truck so that they were there at the uh, points of delivery keeping a record for federal purposes and also the prices as they were set say at uh, four or five in the morning before the stuff went out to the markets. And then this was broadcast uh, for the benefit of farmers because farmers were then basic to the economy of California. They are still number one, but they were more numerous then. Well, I was uh, in the boss's office where the figures came uh, next to his secretary and I worked at an adding machine with these figures all day long and then one of the dozen or more men in the outer office would take them to the radio station at 11 o'clock for delivery at the 12 o'clock farm report on one occasion Everyone was busy at various tasks, and the boss handed me the stuff and told me to go. And uh, I was given cab fare to go there, 
but I looked at the address and I realized it was within walking distance, about five, six blocks. I went there, gave them the uh, market report, signed for it, uh, filling out a little form, and then walked back. I walked in uh, about 15, 18 minutes after I left, and the uh, head of the market news bureau turned on me angrily and demanded to know why I had not left yet. I should have left at 11 promptly. And I said, but I've gone and come before I realized uh, what the situation was because everyone had been going and taking uh, the whole hour and then the noon break before returning. So they had two hours off. <laughs> and, and they had forgotten to tell you. And they had forgotten to tell me, and they were all in shock because I had... You ruined it. I ruined it for them. But now, that was not an attitude you would have found ten years or six or seven years before. That was something created by the New Deal and by government agencies. This was a federal agency, so it was especially apparent there. But goofing off on the job became now... Well, you uh, could if it was a federal agency. You couldn't if it was a commercial organization because there were five guys for every job. Yes. And they were sharp. The competition was quick, and you could be fired up, a drop of a hat. On the other hand, there were no resumes. Mm -hmm. You could walk across the street and apply to a fellow's competitor, and uh, if he said, uh, do you know anything about the work, you know how to do it, and so forth, then you could be hired. There was no dossier that followed you from job to job. He didn't say, how far have you gone in school? Don't forget, the 30s was a time when schooling was held against you. If you had a, a graduate degree or even a bachelorate, you couldn't get an entry-level job because they assumed that you were too good to keep it and you would be looking over their shoulder for something better every minute. So you were overqualified. And employers then were geared to assessing men and doing it very, very ably. And very quickly. And they were not afraid to fire at the drop of a hat. Oh. Something that employers dread now. Well, I, if you were fired, you were paid on the spot. Mm -hmm. And if you quit, you had to wait regular payday. Mm -hmm. Well, I've been both fired and quit <laughs> on various occasions, more than I could remember. <laughs> and on one job I had, working in, I've forgotten now, I was in the office, but I don't know what I was doing. I decided to leave, and then I thought, well, I'd, it'd be better if he fires me, because then he'll have to pay me off. And there was a clock on the wall, and he had a wristwatch, and he had a watch in his vest. And when you came in, he'd look at the watch in his vest, his wristwatch, and the clock on the wall. <laughs> and he was great for punctuality, which was pretty common in those days. Well, I came in at 9.20. <laughs> and he rushed out of his office and went through his routine and said, what happened? I said, what do you mean, what happened? He said, well, you're 20 minutes late. I said, what do you want? Note from my mother? <laughs> he said, you're fired. <laughs> and it wasn't until he was writing out the check that he looked at me and he said, you did that deliberately. <laughs> <laughs> Life was not as grim. It didn't have all the luxuries and conveniences, but it wasn't as grim. There was more laughter, there was more joy, there was more independence mm -hmm. than we have today. Yes. The boss could fire you, and you could walk in another place, and they didn't ask you why you left. They just say, can you do the work? Mm -hmm. I do recall, though, that one of my fates in almost all the jobs I had was to wind up as a as a administrator, as a manager. 
And I've never particularly enjoyed being a manager because it's like being Papa, like being father, as you know. Everybody becomes your kid and you have to listen to his troubles and take care of him and uh, sympathize and so forth. And I, I even developed a technique for breaking in as a manager. And I really probably shouldn't say so aloud, but my first task was to establish authority. And to establish authority, I would fire somebody and I would do it fairly quickly. And then it would be like having a bloody head on the corner of the desk. Everyone in that department or that group from then on would come to attention. Mm -hmm. And never until I did that. Mm -hmm. And I, I had no compunction about it because there was always somebody there that was fireable. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's no longer true. I know. I did that at Ashton Oil. I fired the advertising director, and they they supported me in the dismissal. But they told me not to do it again because it was against their policy. Uh, there was supposed to be a review, and there was supposed to be a probationary period, and I don't know what all. In more than one area mandatory retirement has gone in simply as a way of getting rid of people they're afraid to fire. I know that at one university the top man in the department had to go because to get rid of a man who was becoming senile and the chairman was unwilling to say to the man you cannot function well anymore we're going to have to drop you they instituted a policy which eliminated both men. Well, Their top scholar. It was not terrible. I, yes. ha I had uh, Christian Herald, you remember, was being edited by Poling, yeah. uh, Poling's nephew, really. And uh, he said he had a problem that there was one of the editors on the publication, and I have no hesitation in saying this, as he didn't ask me to keep it a secret. One of the editors was an alcoholic. What should I do? I, he said he has a wife and several children, a very nice family, but he's an unreliable, irresponsible alcoholic. I said, is he the only one? He said, yes. I said, the other editors are sober and do their work. He said, yes. I said, and uh, you give them the same money you give him? You give him less money? You give him the same money? He said, well, the same money. Well, I said, why, do you, why are you doing that? Why are you rewarding the unworthy? But he said he has a nice family. But I said, it's not your responsibility to take care of his family. It's his and he's never going to pick it up as long as you're taking care of his family for him. Yes. He said, well, I didn't expect that sort of response from you, Otto. He said, I, I sort of thought you were a more sympathetic fellow. I said, well, I really am thinking in terms of helping the man and not supporting him in his vice. And I've had to confront similar problems as a manager. Uh, we have a fellow here who has been with the company for seven years, I remember, in one situation, and he had a family, too. And they, the other man said, well, we really don't think you ought to let him go. I said, well, let's put it this way. He is holding up progress in his department. If I can find somebody that can do a better job, then we could probably hire two or three more people in that area within a year. Mm -hmm. If I keep him in the job, that department will continue to be mediocre. Now, we're not doing a lot of other people a favor by keeping him, and he is in the wrong job for his capacity. He doesn't belong in this job. You've held him on for sentimental reasons, but we really can't afford this. Well, they said, uh, see if, if you can do it and so, do it decently. I said, oh, I'll try my best. And what I did finally is that I called another group, called a, uh, I've forgotten, I think it was a magazine that was running for some business group. 
And I said, I've got an experienced editor. But I said, he's blocked where he is. He cannot be promoted. I'm not even sure that he belongs on this kind of a book. And yours seems to me he might do better at. And they said, well, uh, send him over. I said, no, I won't do that. He doesn't know I want to get rid of him. I said, you call him and invite him in. And if, uh, if you like him, well, then, of course, you'll both be better off. So they called him in. And they liked him, and they hired him. So then he came in, and he told me off. <laughs> and I really think God should give me a gold star for putting up with that <laughs> and not saying anything, you know. But he was gone, and it worked out very well. It worked out. But it, it's no favor to keep an incompetent man in a job. No, and I've often wondered... In those days, when people were very readily dropped, and there was usually blunt, plain speaking. Now, your oh, yes. episode took place after the war. Yes. I'm talking about before the war. Yes. Well, when I, the, the watch thing was before yes. the war. Yes. <laughs> and before the war, there were so many people eager for work that if a person uh, didn't perform... He was expendable. That's he right. was easily replaced. He was holding back everybody. Yes. And everybody knew it. Yes. Now, they knew, every worker knew, there were consequences if they didn't perform. Sure. They lived in a world of consequences. That's right. Debt was at an all-time low personal debt in the 30s. Well, look at the foreclosures. Yes. Look at the penalty. Yes. And Roosevelt tried heavily to inflate the economy, but nobody would borrow because they had been burned. They knew there were consequences. Now, after 1950, something new came into the United States, far in excess of any of the borrowing that marked the 20s. The long-term debt and well, overextension into debt. The 30-year mortgage. Yes, the 30-year mortgage. That was the greatest thing. The, the combination, it wasn't simply the 30-year mortgage. It was the 30-year mortgage and the IRS write-off. Yes. Well... At the same time, there was the belief that uh, somebody was going to bail you out. Or should. Or should, yes. And parents very often did. The attitude, unfortunately, after the war of the Depression-year uh, youth was, well, I had it rough. I'm going to spare my children. So in the 50s and 60s, they were spoiling them. And the net result was uh, the debt binge we've had ever since. One of the most common pastoral problems is the young couple that gets so head over heels in debt that if they paid all the payments on any given month, they wouldn't have enough to eat. They would have nothing uh, left to eat on. And I've talked to people who are uh, financial consultants like Victor Poirier mm -hmm. and others as well. And this is a common experience both with ministers and uh, counselors that young couples do not see a day of reckoning because they're so used to being bailed out by their parents. Well, there are some other things, and I agree with what you say. The institutionalization, which I thought of earlier. All these people were picked out by the millions. I think we had something like 16 million people in uniform, and that's not counting all the uh, subsidiary forces that were involved in such a defense effort. We had cost plus uh, programs in shipyards, steel mills, and so forth. Later on, they did something terrible. They renegotiated the contracts. Now, it was true 
that during the war there was a lot of waste, but the waste was at the expense of, of uh, time. Mm -hmm. You were told that they had to get things out immediately, so these people spared no expense in order to turn it out. Well, then later, at the end of the war, in came young accountants, too young to have been involved during the period, who reviewed all these contracts and who said this was not a competitive price, you will have to give us back what they called excess profits. And in the process, they destroyed the sanctity of contract. Yes. Because if you cannot rely upon a contract you make with your government, then you cannot rely upon a contract you make with anybody yes. in, that, in that country. And that was the beginning of that sort of nonsense which is now rampant. Contracts are broken all over. And the other part was the learning in groups and in masses. And the biggest, the biggest point of such schooling, and you can call it schooling whether it's in an army or a navy or wherever, is that you learn obedience. Mm -hmm. And these are fundamentally obedience classes in which you learn that if you obey the teacher and you obey the rules, you get a good mark, and if you disobey, if you dissent, or if you differ, you do not get a good mark. So out came the group mentality of the modern American, which took place, the, 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 uh, I understand the same thing took place in Britain. In Britain, the socialists taught the troops and they taught the troops to despise Churchill and turn toward the Labour Party. Yes. yes. They turned the clock around in Great Britain. And, of course, we, we selected a lot of things from Britain. It was done here. That's a smaller country with, with less people. The things that happen in Britain are more discernible than they are in a, a massive country like ours. But I noticed at the... After the war, uh, I, I talked to the Publishers Association of California because I wanted to settle out here. And the fellow said, Otto, he said, for what we have to pay a man like you, we can get two kids straight from schools of journalism, and we don't have to worry about what they'll write. Mm -hmm. And I was through. Yes. I was through at the end of the war. And I, of course, went into other contributory uh, parallel lines of activity, publicity and public relations and advertising and so forth. But more and more I began to run into the young men who matured after the war or during the war. Now to mature during a war is to mature during a time of restlessness when money was abundant because we were far from the scene of battle. Most Americans forget that. We were like the Swedes. There was no fighting here. There was only money and work here. Yes. So the Americans got a view of World War II, which was, they liked it. Yes. It was at a distance. It wasn't dangerous to them. And afterwards, these young men looked at me as though I was Buffalo Bill. They really and truly, I was old-fashioned by my late twenties because the whole society had changed its views. Mm -hmm. uh, you spoke of the abundance of money here as in Sweden. I worked uh, as a student during the summers and uh, Saturdays for an antique jeweler. Uh, he got most of his stock from Italy, mm. Florentine jewelry in mm. particular was his specialty. With the war, that supply was cut off, and he had to shut down his uh, shop. I ran into him uh, somewhat later, towards the end of the war, and he was operating a shop that was selling uh, very expensive, very fancy uh, 
uh, uh, nightgowns and pajamas to the war worker women. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, it, it uh, troubles me. He said, these are extremely expensive. They are luxury items. Mm-hmm. And here are all the, the Rosies, the Riveters, mm-hmm. buying them with uh, no one to wear them for. Mm-hmm just spending their money because they've got so much of it and they cannot keep it. So he said they'll come in and buy more than they need for years to come Hmm. because they're eager to spend the money. They feel rich Mm -hmm. and they want luxury items. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. I think probably this is an appropriate time to talk about my mother who was quite patriotic and uh, she put $80,000 into American war bonds in early 1942. That was a fortune then. That was a lot of money then. And she put her name and my brother's name on half of them and her name and my name on the other half and never told us a thing, never mentioned it. And when she died in, I think it was 19... What is this, 88? She died, I think, in 1982, at the age of 83. The value of those $80,000 in war bond had shriveled to the point where when the lawyer called me up, he said, you have a very modest legacy from your mother, you and your brother. Very modest. She never dreamed that her government her beloved country that her government would steal from her mm-hmm. well you see in uh, 1940 those cities and places where a teacher could make from 150 to 180 dollars a month yes. would have as many as five and six thousand applicants for one position oh yes because that was considered very good pay. And it was a stable job and yes. a, uh, a class job, so to speak. I, I always thought that the police of New York City in the late 30s, the 30s, were the sharpest men that I personally knew in terms of worldly wisdom, what they call street smarts, which I a phrase I don't particularly like, worldly wisdom I prefer. It was great competition for those jobs, and they paid well. And there was a, a certain amount of cumshaw involved, but it wasn't immoral. It wasn't from prostitution or thievery or drugs or liquor or anything of that sort. What would ha- they would get favors mm-hmm. from businessmen, uh, sp- proprietors of stores, and so forth, who couldn't afford to buy a special security job and wanted to make sure that Flanagan would p- keep an eye out for them. And Flanagan would. And and this is almost, you might say, part of humanity. Uh, now I notice, in the same level that the policemen are not paid uh, commensurately, the salaries of the police have not kept up with inflation, so therefore the caliber of competition for the police job is not as high as it was. It's not as keen as it was. They have more regulations and restrictions than they did, and they have less common sense. I keep reading where they put eight bullets into one man. No, it's not necessary to riddle an individual in order to stop him. That's a cowardly thing to do. One bullet is enough to stop anybody. One well-placed bullet will stop an elephant, unless you're afraid, and then you spray him with bullets. And I see various actions by various police forces, which I don't think are very admirable or very sensible. In the uh, the days we're talking about, there was an awful lot of more independence, a lot more independent judgment. This was a country that, that was still in the control of the people. I think that's yes. what it comes down to. Yes. And that has been lost progressively and it's because the people have given more and more of their own uh, 
responsibility to the federal government and to the state governments. Well, they sold their souls. Yes. Well, our time is almost over, Otto. Is there a closing uh, well, statement yes, that you'd like I, to make? I think the pendulum swings. The pendulum never stops. This country was so different in the 30s from the 20s that it could have been two different societies. So different in the 40s and the 30s that you could say the same. So different today from the 60s, for instance. Uh, not that different, but different. There are sweeps that take place in the American society, and I don't think that the way we see things today is the way that we will see them in a decade from now. Very good. Now, before we close, there's something I'd like to say. These easy chairs we are trying to produce for you with the best content we're capable of at the lowest possible price. As a result, there are some things we could do that we don't do. For example, we only number the easy chairs because to put down a title on them would cost uh, more. Therefore, we suggest that when you get an easy chair, you mark it with the title. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.